to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the cap have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Some Congress is certified. Now Congress Yeah, right. Now Congress I didn't say over, so let, let me see. Go, go to the paragraph before. Okay. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Season 2, Episode 23. Run, Josh, Run. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis for about the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. The intro this week is from Donald Trump's Address to the Nation on January 7th, immediately following the attack on the Capitol. Apparently heavily edited, there were things he didn't want to say. He didn't want to say the nation uh, was, well, he didn't want to say the election was over. He didn't want to say that, uh, you know, people were committing criminal acts. He just wanted to say you will pay and that you don't represent our movement. And yet, it's very, very strange. A lot of is made of the, his misspeaking and his inability to say certain words. Uh, nonetheless, the pattern of what he didn't want to say reveals much more than the fact that he apparently has difficulty reading words such as defiled uh, or say the word yesterday in the context of the attack on the Capitol. He just still you know, for obvious reasons, can't admit that he lost the election in November 2020 and still, by January 7th, won't admit that he lost. In this episode, I'll be reviewing the testimony offered at the 8th public hearing of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack, which was held on July 21st. In addition to that, I will uh, touch on some other matters. Um, one thing I would like to do, of course, uh, is to do the numbers, even though it's only been uh, not too long since uh, the last episode. Um, just do it rather quickly with no inmate profile this time. So here again are the numbers, as always, sourced from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 843 individuals charged, an increase of three since the last tally. There have been a total of 387 indictments, an increase of four. Six deceased, an increase of one. One dismissal, same. One acquittal, same. 356 convictions, an increase of 15 since the last tally. So for three weeks running, there has been over 10 convictions a week. So they're actually clearing the, the boards here. There are more convictions 
for three three weeks running than there have been arrests by not uh, an inconsiderable margin. And finally, 174 sentencing, an increase of five since the last tally. So again, not going to do a profile this episode. Uh, we have a lot uh, of other material to cover. Uh, other than to mention the reason why the number of dead defendants has increased is because of the death of suicide by suicide of Mark Angst, 47, of South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Angst was awaiting sentencing uh, for his parading charge, to which he had previously pled guilty. Um, he joins Matthew Perna, also of Pennsylvania, and Christopher Stanton, Georgia, of Georgia, in being uh, among the January 6th defendants who uh, committed suicide, although uh, apparently there have been other suicides uh, that have been among uncharged January 6th participants as well. So, suicide, of course, is not uncommon among criminal defendants awaiting, awaiting sentencing. Generally, like pre-trial inmates, not uncommon. And it's a known problem in the justice system. I mean, we know, you know, these parading defendants are not getting a lot of time. Uh, we, we don't know what his particular circumstances were. Um, you know, probably, I mean, again, like many of these defendants are getting probation or less than 30 days in jail. So, uh, Mr. Unst may have been having some other personal problems uh, in addition to his legal difficulties stemming from his behavior at the Capitol on January 6th. An important development that now confronts us is that we are definitely in for more hearings when Congress returns from the August break. Uh, I had thought that perhaps they would give it a rest before the midterms, especially as these hearings began, when they first announced that they were scheduled for June. I thought, well, that makes sense, right? Um, you know, but now, obviously, they're, they're not they're not going to do that. Um, and the reasons for not holding hearings are, are pretty self-evident, of course. There's, there's the normal kind of line that, uh, you know, kind of a, a milquetoast approach that there's this sort of status quo anti-principle where you have to look fair, that there's a need for bipartisanship, and the most important thing in the world, the most important consideration, is always to avoid charges of politicization in the run-up to an election. Um, and, but those are usually, you know, we talk about that usually in the terms of, of the Department of Justice. Here, of course, yes, it's a quasi-judicial inquiry, but nonetheless, it's Congress. Congress is, is inherently going to be political. And, you know, originally they weren't going to be holding uh, hearings in, in the fall. But I think the committee has realized the gravity of our current moment and the extent of the work and the volume of work that has yet to be done with regard to uh, informing the public about the truth of what happened during the self-coup attempt uh, leading, you know, January 6th, the events that led up to January 6th, and the events after January 6th. Now, of course, you know, much of the work itself is done by staff, um, and this is, you know, this process is going to be harder for some members than it is for others. We've seen that uh, they have taken part in interviews remotely, um, so doesn't necessarily mean that even though they, they won't be in D.C., that they can't, in fact, continue to take part in the questioning of witnesses. 
Um, now, of course, you know, there's some people who, for whom this is going to be harder than others. And most members, like most members of Congress in general, are in uh, safe districts. But Liz Cheney, of course, faces a primary challenge, and it's a tight race. And Wyoming has a, an especially late primary uh, to be held on August 16th, right in the middle of the recess. So she may be coming back to the work of the committee as a, a lame duck. Um, of course, you know, other members such as Stephanie Murphy, uh, Adam Kinzinger, aren't running for re-election. And, you know, that, that's not going to change, right? So they, you know, they can plow on forward. Now, just looking at where we are in the investigation and the way that they are proceeding, the fact is that they had to keep pushing back the dates. They were uh, originally going to finish with the eight hearings in June, and then they spread them across June and July. And there was everything that they said about the timetables uh, for an interim report and then a final report. So there's a lot of work to be done. They're still finding relevant witnesses, still getting their testimony. Practically daily, there's another announcement. So it's hardly surprising that they have announced the intent to hold more hearings. And I think some of this might be due to some of the data showing that the hearings are, in fact, having an effect on public opinion in the electorate. Although the press keeps up the steady drumbeat about inflation and gas prices, even though gas prices are going down, we really don't know how the midterms are going to go. Um, to state the obvious, Roe has been overturned. It's never happened before. This is the first post-coup election. That's never happened before. So most election forecasters still show the Republicans most, most likely to retake the House and the Senate by a narrow margin. But that's holding a lot of things constant. And if you, you ask election forecasters, you know, uh, they would say that this is an unusual year by a lot of different metrics. So I'll, to my mind, a lot of it is going to come down to mobilization. Mobilization of the Republican base, mobilization of the Democratic base. And this is something that Democrats have traditionally been bad at. Uh, younger voters, um, you know, basically uh, poorer voters typically uh, vote less at lower rates than older voters and more affluent voters. So, you know, these demographic composition of the two different parties uh, has a very measurable effect in, in midterms because uh, those, you know, younger voters, poorer voters, much less likely to vote in midterms than older voters and more affluent voters. Now, it's going to take a, more than a moment here, but I'd like to take the time to catch up on some January 6th related news items. One is the release of DHS emails uh, that were, you know, took place on January 6th through a Freedom of Information Act request. Although the emails are heavily redacted, you can still work out some interesting information. Um, for example, the first email in the chain is sent by someone whose name is redacted, but who is assigned the identifier B6. And yet, curiously, they, they leave the rest of the person's information unredacted. So you can see that this person is a U.S. Navy commander uh, and that they work at the Joint Chiefs Directorate of Management. So if you really wanted to know, I mean, you could probably figure out, you know, how many naval commanders 
were assigned to the Joint Chiefs Directorate of Management at the time of January 6th and worked backward from there. Although I wasn't able to find a public staff listing for that, uh, you know, people could, you know, figure out who that was if they, if they really, really wanted to know. Um, with regard to the redactions, it looks like there's a rank cutoff uh, where they decide that, you know, the cut point to decide whether or not to redact a name. Uh, Brigadier generals and above, as say one stars, were unredacted and anything below Brigadier was redacted. So the first email in the chain was sent to General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and basically consisted of tweets from journalists noting the situation at the Capitol and the evacuation of buildings in the Capitol complex. Curiously, all the times on the emails appear to be wrong. It's almost as if these are being composed on computers whose time function has been randomized. It's very strange. I mean, if this is a reflection of the record keeping at the Pentagon, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to find something like trillions of dollars completely unaccounted for. Of course, yeah, that's already happened. But, you know, the times on their email system are a bit wonky for some reason. I, I don't know if that is on purpose. The next email in the sequence is sent to a much longer and mainly unredacted list of recipients. Um, and so most of the emails in this chain are then replies to this one email. So I'll just list them right now. Lieutenant General Brian Fenton, U.S. Army. Lieutenant General Charles Flynn, U.S. Army. General John Hyten, United States Air Force. General Joseph Martin, U.S. Army. General James McConville, U.S. Army. General Mark Milley, U.S. Army. Kashyap Patel, Chief of Staff to Acting Secretary of Defense Christopher Miller. Lieutenant General Walter Piott, U.S. Army. Lieutenant General Andrew Pappas, U.S. Army. Kenneth Rapunano, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Homeland Security and uh, America's Security Affairs. Anthony Tata, uh, who's described as performing the duties of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, which I gather that's like one level below acting, right? I mean, the, the amount, the extent to which there are so many acting officials in the Trump administration, you know, it's almost as though they had to invent a new category uh, to take a civilian employee and put them in that position. And there was a CC to Brigadier General Christopher Lanev, uh, who's now a major general, whose name you may recognize from the Matthews Memo episode. So again, if you listen to season one, episode 19, the Matthews Memo, you'll recall many of these names. Colonel Matthews wrote, again, just as a quick recap, what I take to be the truly definitive most honest account of the failure to deploy the D.C. National Guard on January 6th. So if you haven't listened to it, obviously I encourage you to do so um, and to read the 36-page memo itself, which is available on Politico if you search on Google for Matthew's memo. That's the first article that comes up, and there's a link to the, art, uh, the memo in the article. So the press really, I think, has dropped the ball, obviously, on the Matthew's memo. I, I know I've talked about it. Uh, many of the questions that many people still publicly pose regarding the deployment of the D.C. National Guard were answered there. And, of course, in that memo, Matthews singles out Piat, Flynn, and Lenev for particular criticism. 
Now, one of the main take-home messages of the Matthews Memo is that the official narrative developed in the DOD Office of the Inspector General report is a total fabrication, supported only by anonymous witnesses and inconsistent with a variety of known facts. So according to Matthews, the DOD OIG report uh, constructed what he calls a planning narrative, a tall tale that asserts that the delay was caused by the need for the D.C. National Guard to develop a complex plan of deployment. What again, one of the main things that the D.C. National Guard trains for and is prepared for is defending the Capitol. They'll need to develop a plan. They, they know what they're doing. I'll, I'll quote quickly from the memo here. Quote, the entire planning narrative created by Brigadier General Lenev and Lieutenant General Piot to justify the delay in an action of Army civilian leadership between 3.04 p.m. and 5.08 p.m. strains credulity. The crux of this narrative is that at 3.04 p.m., Acting Secretary Miller approved the mobilization of the DCNG, which Miller may have interpreted as granting McCarthy permission to send DCNG personnel immediately to the Capitol to support the U.S. Capitol Police. However, McCarthy wanted to see a plan and to brief it to Miller and have Miller approve the plan before sending DCNG personnel to the Capitol. Under this narrative, Major General Walker was either unable or unwilling to develop a workable plan, so Secretary McCarthy took it upon himself to travel to MPD headquarters to confer with Mazer Bowser and Chief Conti and to, with their help, personally develop a plan for the de deployment of the DCNG at the Capitol in support of the U.S. Capitol Police, end quote. And, of course, Matthews then spends the rest of the document explaining that why this is completely absurd. Uh, in truth, according to Matthews, Piat and Flynn kept the entire command structure of the D.C. National Guard tied up in an unnecessary and time-consuming video conference call for over two hours, all while the attack was ongoing. And at the same time, Ryan McCarthy was going around telling Mazer Bowser and anyone else who would listen that the deployment had already been authorized, when in fact he was actively avoiding any communication with D.C. National Guard Commander Major General Walker the entire time. So... Another quote, uh, and again, this is significant. During this call, this is a call between McConville and uh, Major General Walker. At 5.08 p.m., General McConville informed Major General Walker and his leadership team that the Secretary of Defense had authorized the D.C. National Guard to deploy to the Capitol in support of the U.S. Capitol Police. End quote. So, basically, what's revealed in Matthew's memo is that McCarthy never told Walker that deployment was authorized. But McCarthy had told McConville that deployment was authorized, and when McConville told Walker the deployment had been authorized at 5.08, Walker deployed immediately. Even though, technically, um, you know what, McConville's not actually in the command structure. He, this is basically a hearsay command. But again, McCarthy was telling Bowser this, he was telling everybody this, and that is something that is confirmed in these emails, which is why I'm going to focus on this detail. 
So in the newly released DHS emails, Major General Walker isn't included in any of the email chains. So that's significant because this is all about the response to the attack on the Capitol. And therefore, he's the most relevant person who need to be in the loop. But in fact, Walker isn't even mentioned in the email chain at all. And that's significant. I don't know why the press hasn't picked up on that part of the story. Uh, they seem to think that everything is redacted, and therefore there's nothing useful to glean from it. Uh, but that's not true, right? So, yes, maybe Walker is mentioned in the redacted portions. Um, if so, you know, we should learn more about that later. So, it is interesting, however, again, they wouldn't have redacted him in the, uh, you know, in the CC lines. And, you know, he would have, if he would have been included, we would know that because as a major general, uh, they weren't redacting people of that rank. And in fact, if you look uh, at the redactions, there's, you know, it would have been impossible because they, they put everyone's rank in there uh, and there's no person whose redaction block is that long. In any event, second thing that you can glean from the DHS emails is that according to the DHS National Operations Center, at 1.30 p.m., there had been, quote, in the last two hours, no major incidents of illegal activity at this time. Now that is astounding. By 1.30, the mob had already broken through the barricades and were engaged in Capitol Police in heavy fighting. The email mentions, quote, FPS determined Proud Boys threatening to shut down the water system in the downtown area is not a credible threat, end quote. So this is a consistent theme in this supposedly authoritative document from the DHS National Operations Center. They consistently minimize every part of the attack. And again, people have overlooked this, but that's what this email chain is doing. What this email chain is doing is telling top brass at the Pentagon, everything's under control. Yes, you may hear about some threats, but there's nothing really substantial there. They completely ignore actual attacks that are ongoing at a time, uh, you know, when there's supposedly no illegal activity. It's ridiculous. I mean, to match up their timeline and the things that we know, you know, from open source reporting that we know that they were also paying attention to because it's included in the thread, that they're just basically lying by omission. Um, you know... There's, there's lines in there about, quote, suspicious package, cleared, no threat. Quote, vehicle with rifle on the back seat in plain view, under police control while attempting to combat the owner. Quote, man reported with a rifle at 15th and Constitution, detained and no weapon found. Quote, protesters near 16th and Constitutional, Constitution Avenue reportedly with baseball bats, colon, exaggerated reports, end quote. Again, we knew they had baseball bats because they were hitting the cops with them at this very point in time. So that is what DHS was doing. DHS was spending this time telling the Pentagon, nothing to see here, you looky-loos. Just move on. Everything is under control. It, maybe you're seeing something on the news, but these reports are exaggerated. Maybe there are reports of guns, but no guns have actually been found. It is... I can only imagine 
what someone like Millie would have been thinking when he was reading this. So, you know, I don't know why, I mean, this is the main thrust of it, right? I mean, there's just redaction after redaction after redaction, but what we see in the part that is unredacted is this systematic and intentional downplaying and lying about what was actually happening. So the DHS Operations Center was lying about the Capitol attack as it was ongoing. I don't know how people miss this. It's, it's a layup. The lead to this story is that the DHS lied about the Capitol attack as it was ongoing. So, yeah. Uh, again, the DHS uh, National Operations Center, of course, uh, is supposed to be the clearinghouse that's there to prevent another 9-11. That was one of the institutions that, you know, when they created the Department of Homeland Security in this massive and expensive reaction to 9-11, that's what they're supposed to do. Well, whatever their budget is, it's clearly too much money. They're supposed to be the nerve center for the security apparatus, and yet, at 1.30 p.m. on the 6th, there's, you know, no illegal activity happening when... If you go to the video and you turned on any news channel at that time, you would have seen, in fact, that there was illegal activity happening at the Capitol. So, third point, and uh, I'll let go because I, I want to get to the hearing. On page 40 in the email chain, there's the claim that, quote, ARNG reports DC guardsmen being activated tonight as of 15.38 Eastern Standard Time, so 3.38. That, again, is a complete fabrication. They're reporting that, but no one communicated this authorization to General Walker or anyone else at the D.C. National Guard Armory. And so this email chain essentially verifies what we learned in the Matthews memo. Uh, McConville was surprised that Walker wasn't mobilizing. He had been told that they were mobilizing. This is the email that told them that they, the deployment had been authorized. And that's why you find Walker finding out about this duplicity immediately mobilizing. Because if he's other, you know, if McCarthy is telling everyone else that deployment has been authorized, everyone except Walker, then he's just going to go ahead and do it. So, you know, this shows, you know, unequivocally that Charles Lynn and Walter Piott kept the entire chain of command of the DCNG on a pointless and time-consuming video conference call, and at the same time, DHS was telling the command structure at the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, something entirely different. They were telling them lies. They were feeding them absurd lies. In what appears to me to be a very likely related story to this, uh, it has been reported that the government phones of Chad Wolf, the former acting DHS secretary, and Ken Cuccinelli, uh, acting deputy secretary, again, another acting person, uh, reportedly had the same thing happen to them that supposedly happened to the Secret Service phones. They were reset in January 2021. Um, and it is curious, though. Uh, DHS is doing this. Secret Service is doing this. Is it just the entities that were associated with January 6th? Because usually you wouldn't have this. You would have it uh, happening in different departments. This is, this is either, you know, um, 
government-wide, which it wasn't, I know that for a fact, um, or it, you know, this is highly targeted. So the DHS Officer of uh, Inspector General has been out of compliance with Congress, um, and obviously the, the January 6th committee is going to be looking into this. Uh, according to Benny Thompson, quote, it is extremely troubling that the issue of deleted text messages related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol is not limited to the Secret Service, but also includes Chad Wolf and Ken Cuccinelli, who were running the DHS at the time, end quote. So it looks like, again, a lot of the problematic activity associated with the military response uh, centered on DHS, Department of Homeland Security. And, you know, hopefully we'll find out more on that part of the story. And speaking of people of whom I... In another new development that I'll put here because he's related very closely to the D.C. National Guard deployment story, is testimony, audio-only testimony, from Acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller. You'll remember Miller, of course, was... Well, at, we don't know what he was doing, really, on January 6th. Uh, he had testified to Congress in the summer... Sorry, the spring of 2021. Um, and... Based on what we know from Matthew's memo, probably not entirely truthfully. Well, he has apparently uh, given testimony that corroborates much of the testimony that we hear from so many witnesses uh, in the, the eighth hearing, saying over and over again that Trump did nothing to uh, stop the attack on the Capitol. So let's listen to that, because... They put this out after the public hearing. Probably should have gone in the public hearing. Don't know if this was perhaps testimony that was given afterwards. Um, it seems unlikely. Uh, maybe it, it just wound up on the cutting room floor somehow. I want to be clear here that it, it, since then, in February 2021, Mark Meadows said on Fox News, Fox News that, quote, even in January, that was a given, as many as 10,000 national Yeah, you're, that's correct. There was no direct, there was no order. 
And so, of course, that should be surprising to no one that there was no plan to deploy 10,000 guardsmen. Of course there wasn't. Miller mentions his plan, um, but what he actually seemed to do on January 6th was to hide in his office, avoiding all contact with General Walker while Ryan McCarthy ran around telling all and sundry that authorization for the D.C. National Guard had been given when it actually had not been. None of this has really been covered in the hearing so far, and there's been inadequate press coverage on Miller's role in all this. Um, it's easy to understand why. There are few official sources anxious to tell this story, and without having official sources, journalists are loath to touch it. It's very embarrassing to our multi-trillion dollar defense establishment. We pay all this money for defense, and yet when they are actually needed, you have Chris Miller hiding in his office, not deploying the D.C. National Guard. So the only reason we know any of the real story is because of Colonel Matthews, Major General Walker, and the rest of the D.C. National Guard officers who were in the room when they were being stonewalled by the Pentagon. In another development since last episode, Steve Bannon was convicted of two counts of contempt of Congress on Friday, July 26th. Bannon had pledged that this would be the misdemeanor from hell, but mainly the way in which this proved to be the case was simply through a variety of absurd motions that were all denied by his judge, Trump appointee Carl Nichols. So if Trump appointee Carl Nichols is denying all of his motions, you know they're bad. The jury took less than three hours to deliberate before finding him guilty on both counts, the refusal to testify and the refusal to hand over documents. Now this was always an open and shut case, and Bannon had already had quite a bit of latitude. He had plenty of opportunity to comply, but of course he didn't, and now he faces the consequences. But apparently, of course, none of this stops him from running his mouth. During the entire trial, he would go out and spout nonsense to the press. Uh, someone who loves to talk so much, you know, you'd imagine that uh, they would enjoy the opportunity to testify, but of course he doesn't. He'll talk to the press, he won't talk to the committee. And if he had actually complied, um, he would probably be handing over evidence that would lead to him being charged with seditious conspiracy. So, you know, makes sense that he wouldn't. Bannon is scheduled to be sentenced on October 21st and faces a maximum of two years and a minimum of two months. Worth remembering in this context that Bill Clinton's former business partner, Susan McDougal, did 18 months in federal prison for her contempt of court charges related to Whitewater. So, you know, I think this is a kind of a bigger deal than Whitewater. And I know, you know, contempt of Congress, well, uh, the court system, you know, doesn't have a lot of these cases. But this should be at least as serious, one would imagine, as Susan McDougall. Alright, so the story of the Secret Service, which I covered in the last episode, has also continued to develop. You'll remember that there were anonymous sources vehemently denying Cassidy Hutchinson's account of the, the event, particularly the lunge incident, but yet oddly silent on the rest of the story. The Secret Service spokesman, Anthony Guglielmi, I really don't, Guglielmi, 
little bit, uh, has been particularly insist insistent. Uh, we'll just call him Tony for now. Anyway, the committee requested all the texts from the Secret Service, and Secret Service insisted that they had undergone a device transfer and that the data had been lost. Um, I mean, that part, you know, is plausible. It's a thing that federal agencies do with government-issued devices. But the part that's not really plausible is that they made no effort to mandate that the data from these devices be preserved in accordance with the Federal Records Act. Now, to anyone who's old enough to remember the Warren Commission that looked into the assassination of JFK, this is particularly striking. How would the agency do a proper investigation if they don't preserve their own data? And the apparently voluntary nature of compliance on the part of individual agents wouldn't fly in the corporate world, and it shouldn't fly in the federal government. So the Secret Service announced that they would be doing their own investigation into the matter until the Department of Homeland Security OIG account uh, announced no, no, the Secret Service needs to stop their investigation, the DHS OIG would be doing their own investigation. And so on July 26th, House Oversight Chairwoman Carolyn Maloney and House Homeland Security Chairman Betty Thompson, that's right, he's chairing another committee, wrote a letter to the DHS OIG head, Joseph Kafari, to say that under no circumstances should Kafari, a Trump appointee, play any role in the DHS OIG investigation because they find it wholly inappropriate that Kafari had known that these records were deleted by December of 2021 and yet made no effort to inform either the January 6th committee or any relevant oversight committee in either House of Congress. DHS apparently only notified Congress that they were aware of the deletions on July 14th. And so it's, it's all very, very regular. And it's easy to assume that the Secret Service is covering something up. A lot of people think it's related to the idea that Mike Pence's detail was going to haul him off to an undisclosed location to keep him away from Congress, which would fit in with Chuck Grassley's claim that he didn't expect Pence to be at the Capitol on January 6th. That could be. Uh, my own pet theory here is that it has to do with the effort to shut down the magnetometers and the effort to prevent Trump from going to the Capitol. That delay where he's apparently, you know, the Secret Service is deliberating what to do about his insistence of going to the Capitol. One of the few findings, honestly, I'll talk about this now, is I was genuinely shocked by, uh, in this entire series of, of hearings, especially since the Hutchinson hearing, is a revelation that Trump genuinely expected that he was going to be able to go to the Capitol. What he wanted to do here is so far from normal practice that I never really credited the idea that Trump really sincerely believed that he would be permitted to go. I'd assumed that he knew it wouldn't be possible. And so this was just a ruse designed to get the mob to go to the Capitol. But apparently no. No. Apparently on January 6th, he thought he was going to be able to get the OTR movement uh, when he got into the presidential SUV. Now, I think the process whereby the decision that was made by the Secret Service to prevent Trump from going to the Capitol is a big part of what they're trying to protect for some reason. Whether they're afraid it's going to reveal some other criminal action, whether it's just 
too far out of step with policy that they don't even want to uh, float the idea that they ever entertained this idea. I don't know. Uh, but I think that they're applying, the committee is applying a lot of pressure on the Secret Service, and they are going to be like a dog with a bone. You know, the Secret Service isn't like Steve Bannon. The reason why the Secret Service destroyed those texts must be because they had to do so. Uh, because they knew that someone would be looking for these records. And they knew that um, destroying them would not look good. So whatever was in the records has to be worse than the consequences they would face from destroying the records. So Congress has every right to ask any agency for all of its records at any time. And at this point, I think, you know, Congress is one thing, but the president has a role to play here as well. Biden is certainly within his rights to simply start firing people because they violated the law. It's actually happened before. So, Con you know, the president uh, can fire people. And, you know, maybe they'll move to a different department, or whatever, but they won't be uh, in, you know, involved in any kind of presidential secret service detail. Um, you know, the DHS can and should continue its own investigation without Kafari's involvement, but this is an agency that clearly needs to be scoured from the top down at this point. So finally, before we crack on with the hearing, one last story. This time from the New York Times, Maggie Haberman and Luke Broadwater, who somehow obtained emails related to the fake elector scheme. And the list of people who are involved in the emails that were obtained by the, the journalists at the Times reads like a who's who of every part of the January 6th investigation. Uh, some of these names are, are new to me. Some of them, of course, are not new to anyone. They're, they're mentioned in many times on the show, and if you've been following the story, you have seen them in other contexts as well. One of them is Jack Bullincheck, an Arizona attorney in charge of the Arizona fake elector scheme. Uh, figures prominently and probably the most cited uh, author of these emails in the Times article. Boris Epstein, uh, the Moscow-born attorney and strategist for the Trump campaign, uh, who's the main point of contact between the campaign and John Eastman. And Epstein was reporting directly to Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows. Kelly Ward, Andy Biggs, Ron Johnson, uh, Mike Roman, who's the uh, Trump director of e Election Day Operations, and his deputy, Gary Michael Brown, Christina Bob, of course, uh, Jenna Ellis, Bruce Marks, James uh, Trupus, who's an attorney, Cleta Mitchell, Kenneth Chasebro, I never know how to pronounce this, Chasebro, 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 that's what I'm going to say. And, of course, Doug Mastriano, uh, who was the Pennsylvania fake elector point person. Now, the Times is playing this story very close to the vest. They've actually released very little of the actual material in the emails. Um, one of the things that they did release, however, is that one of these attorneys, this Willinchek of Arizona, kept referring to the fake electors as fake electors, which really goes directly to the consciousness of guilt. So, this cast of characters, of course, isn't new, but what's new is that these emails exist, and that the Times has them, which means that they got them from somewhere.
which is, you know, kind of its own interesting question. Uh, wouldn't have been the DOJ, right? Um, may have been the committee, but it also could have been some witness uh, who'd already supplied them to either the Department of Justice or the committee, some insider who's looking to cut some kind of deal in exchange for testimony. Really don't know, according to the reporting, the Times verified the legitimacy of the emails by checking with persons affiliated with the Trump campaign. So presumably another person who's party uh, to some of these exchanges and these email chains. So whoever did it, this is a very strategic uh, release of information at this time. And of course, um, you know, the fake elector story, the fake elector case, appears to be the one that is most furthest along in the cases that the Department of Justice is known to be investigating. Now, you know, unlike the attack on the Capitol, which the Trump camp is depicting as some kind of spontaneous happening that totally wasn't organized by Steve Bannon, Mike Flynn, Ali Alexander, or the Proud Boys, or anybody else, there, there's no denying this. This was a conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States, and it was clearly organized by the Trump campaign. Now, this is all part of the case that is being operated by the Department of Justice. It appears to be furthest along. Uh, if you want more on that, go to, back to Season 2, Episode 8, The Grand Jury, from this past April. So, yes, you know, they have a grand jury. Could this be the, the same one? You know, are they the ones who, who have this material? I'm sure if people are giving it to the Times, they've already given it to the government, and presumably the grand jury has these emails. So, the Department of Justice has been working on this for at least five months. And uh, in related news, on Friday, July 22nd, Vice President Pence's Chief of Staff, Mark Short, testified before this grand jury, and uh, so did... Greg Jacob, well, not the same date, uh, Greg Jacob, Pence's top lawyer, has also testified before the grand jury. So it shows something that we always, already knew. These electors were part of a coordinated campaign by Giuliani, Doug Mastriano, and other conspirators. The fraud was consciously committed, so much so that attorneys organizing the whole effort called them fake. Now, I'd really like to see all these emails. I think we all would. But this seems to be a very controlled release, pending the criminal inquiry. The part that's missing from the time story is one that I think that might prove key. Many of these electors went to great lengths to meet in secret, and some slates included language that specified that these electors were only provisional. Now, you don't do that if you're promote, you know, appointing legitimate electors. You do that if you're making a con criminal conspiracy to defraud the government of the United States. And especially that secrecy part, right? That's not an accident. That would have been coordinated. So it would be interesting to see whose idea that was. Whose idea was it for them to, you know, have, for example, in Michigan, uh, these people meet a closed-door session at a time when there were COVID restrictions in place at the Capitol, and, you know, they had to try to meet in private to get these shenanigans done. So I expect there's going to be more evidence to come uh, concerning this need for secrecy and other parts of the fake elector scheme. Now, a quick note. Um, I already mentioned that Mark Short and Greg Jacob have now testified 
in front of this grand jury investigating Trump and his fake elector scheme. The committee, well, I should add, we don't know if that's the, you know, the grand jury that um, was, they testified before. I mean, it could be, it could be multiple grand juries, and it could be a different one looking at a different part of the case that we don't necessarily know about. At any rate, the committee appears to be getting new testimony from new witnesses. So the uh, committee has heard testimony from Mike Pompeo. And on Thursday, Trump Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney testified before the January 6th committee. And the Department of Justice has reportedly secured the cooperation of Jeff Clark's senior counsel. You'll remember Jeff Clark, of course, was the person, uh, the, the attorney who wanted to be the attorney general um, and came up with this, you know, his implementation of this fake elector scheme to, you know, in furtherance of that effort. It was just unbridled ambition. And unsealed documents from the Department of Justice now show that January 6th defendant uh, Brandon Straka, uh, a sedition VIP, a founder of the Walk Away movement, reportedly gave evidence to the Department of Justice that implicates at least 12 other individuals, including rally organizers. So I guess maybe that sweetheart plea deal that he got might have been worth it after all. And the committee has also announced that it is sending over transcripts of testimony from at least 20 witnesses to the Department of Justice. Now, my guess is that these probably pertain to the fake elector scheme, um, and there's probably much more to come, uh, almost as if it was a two-track investigation from the very beginning. Now, the committee said, well, we don't have any plans to hand over anything additional at this time, but I don't know. You know, I think they got a lot. I think there's, we're going to hopefully see more information sharing in that regard. So that's kind of a summary of the, the new witnesses who are apparently coming forward to testify to grand jury in D.C. and also to the committee. I may have missed a few. I mean, it is happening so fast right now. And as Cheney said at the eighth hearing itself, quote, doors have opened, new subpoenas have been issued, and the dam has begun to break. All right, so I finally get to move on to the hearing itself. Now, as I've mentioned, the lead presenters of the hearing were Representative Elaine Luria and Representative Adam Kinzinger. Total running time for the hearing was two hours and 44 minutes. And so that, you know, that just means there was a lot. In this hearing. If you look at the transcript, you'll see there's a whole heck of a lot more in it than just Josh Hawley uh, fleeing before the mob. You'll recall the last time that I expected even more witnesses would appear in this hearing than had appeared in the last hearing. Uh, that's true. Uh, the last time there were 35, and this time, you know, again, counting videotape testimony uh, of in person appearances and other audio or video evidence, it was 41. So this time, the witnesses were, and again, not all these are people cooperating, right? Some of them, there's video or audio from other sources. You had Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, Mark Milley, Matthew Pottinger, Sarah Matthews, and anonymous White House national security official, Sergeant Mark Robinson, Pat Cipollone, Keith Kellogg, Nick Luna, Kaylee McEnany, unidentified officers in radio chatter, Cassidy Hutchinson, various unidentified Fox News reporters, Judd Deere, 
unidentified Secret Service agents on the radio, uh, Janet Bueller, Jessica Watkins, unidentified persons from the Oath Keepers Zello recordings, Stephen Ayers, Tommy Tuberville, Jared Kushner, Molly Michaels, Molly Michael, excuse me, uh, Mark Meadows, Mark Short, Jamie Herrera-Boitler, Julie Radford, Mike Gallagher, Joe Biden, Brent Baer, Eric Hirschman, Christopher Miller, Tim Murtaugh, Greg Jacob, Rudy Giuliani, Chip Roy, Jason Miller, Eugene Scalia, Ivanka Trump, and finally, Steve Bannon. So, you know, as a kind of a crescendo, I think it was a, a good hearing to end this tranche of hearings with. It was effective. There have been hearings where I think they've gotten the order wrong, or they've heard testimony from witnesses who are less effective than perhaps some other evidence that they could have presented, but they really do seem to have gotten it right this time. Now, originally I was going to call this episode 187 Minutes, but I think that in the end, this will be the hearing where that's mainly going to be remembered for the Josh Hawley video. So I went with that. Uh, I realize that my usual practice is to proceed through the transcript in order, but in spirit of the fact that the Josh Hawley running video has made such of a splash, let's just talk about that first. Now, in this uh, segment, the committee sought to draw a visual contrast between what Hawley did on his way into the Capitol on January 6th and his behavior once he was actually inside the Capitol and members were being moved to a secure location. So the committee showed an image with which we are all by now familiar of Josh Hawley with his fist raised. Uh, kind of bothers me when I see someone raising their fist like that, of course. I think of Huey Newton, of Gloria Steinem, and Dorothy Pittman Hughes. Uh, people like that, not Josh Hawley. So Hawley has the semiotics of this gesture all wrong. If he really understood it, he would have opened his hand, straightened his arm, and given the Roman salute, which would have been far more consistent with his actual attack on electoral democracy. Be that as it may, his intent was to incite the mob, and so the committee offered a pretty effective uh, statement, uh, you know, in that regard, from an unnamed Capitol Police officer who testified that they were bothered by this because the clenched fist, quote, bothered her greatly because he was doing it in a safe space, protected by the officers and the barriers. So that was effective, showing Josh Hawley going into the Capitol and raising his fist in solidarity with the attacking mob. Representative Luria immediately contrasted this behavior uh, in a, a very sort of deadpan fashion um, with a never-before-seen clip from a Capitol security camera showing Hawley running, apparently running to seek shelter from the mob. One of the members of the committee's team was also present in the chamber during testimony to actually film the audience's reaction, and their reaction was immediate. There were gasps and chuckles and chortles. Now, some commenters have basically said, this isn't cricket, this is dirty pool, unsportsmanlike. How dare they politicize these hearings by showing the actual conduct of members of Congress in the Capitol on January 6th. That is foul. Um, now, it should also be noted, you know, that, uh, mem that Hawley himself 
has a book slated for publication in June of that next year entitled Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. Um, I don't know if the thing has been written yet. Weirdly, it's, it's available for pre-order. Some of them have it being at 256 pages. Who knows if that's a placeholder or is, you know, how he's even hired as ghostwriter yet. Anyway, to my mind, a lot of these criticisms uh, misses the re real point, right? A lot of people who are, you know, taking note of this contrast, uh, who are either want to condemn Hawley or who want to say that somehow this is inappropriate, they're, they're missing the point. So in the weeks since the last hearing, what I've wound up thinking about most regarding the Hawley clip isn't that he's a coward uh, or that he's a hypocrite for running from, from a mob of his own fellow Trumpist cult members, but rather uh, to ask myself a counterfactual question. What would have happened if Hawley hadn't run? So we now know that Trump fully expected that he would be able to go to the Capitol despite having the contingency in place of using Alex Jones as a stand-in to lead the march. But what was Trump going to do when he was actually at the Capitol? Presumably, he would have addressed the mob, and they would have perhaps then swept him into Congress so that he could invoke the Insurrection Act or invoke Article 48 or execute Clone Protocol 66 or whatever his plan was. Given all the nonsense about this mob being tourists or the way members of Congress have minimized the attack, uh, the way they've claimed that it is a Fed-surrection, whatever that is, or the claims that they've made that the defendants who are in pretrial detention are somehow political prisoners, why is it that not a single member of the House, not a single senator, decided to act as a stand-in for Trump in, at the Capitol on January 6th? What if, instead of running, Hawley had found a way to get to the Upper West Terrace with a microphone and start addressing the crowd? What would he have said if that happened, right? Uh, if Hawley or any of the other 147 Republicans who voted against certification, if any of them had done that, they would have cemented their status as icons in the MAGA movement they would be possible front-runners to replace Trump on the ticket in 2024. It also would have placed Capitol Police in a very difficult and terrible situation. I mean, what would they do in that circumstance? Would they protect members? Would they continue to fight? Even after their own members appeared to ask uh, them to admit the mob into the building? So, I mean, there's a lot of what-ifs involved in this kind of counterfactual question, but to me, what it really sheds light on is the real point of including Hawley, Hawley's running video clip. Uh, it's not just that he was a coward. The fact that neither he or any of the other members who believe in the cause of sedition chose to stand with the seditionists is what's really significant. That's the significant. Uh, it shows that, you know, it doesn't show that he wasn't afraid of the mob, per se, so much that rather he knew that this would give the game away. Uh, for him to stand there with them, it would open them up to facing sedition or other charges related to the coup attempt. And so Hawley's not running from the mob so much as he's running from accountability. And I think that this is a question that ought to be asked of every Trumpist in Congress. Why didn't you stand with the mob? Why did you go to a secure location? 
The fact that not one of them did this shows that the arguments that they make today are in bad faith. They could have cemented their status as great MAGA kings, but yet they had their chance. Not one of them, not a single one, stood with the mob. So let's go ahead with the transcript. Chairman Thompson wasn't able to be at the hearing in person because he had regrettably contracted COVID. Uh, I still haven't seen any current word on how Thompson is doing, but he appeared well in his remote segments during the hearing, so I hope he's hale and hearty and recovers fully soon. The main hearing presenters, of course, as I mentioned, were Luria and Kinsinger, and uh, as always, they made introductory comments. Uh, Cheney once again reiterated the overall framework that the committee has developed for understanding Trump's role in the attack, of course, that uh, seven-part plan. Um, you know, I like to take note of that because even though it's a simplification of what happened, it shows how they are winnowing down the complexity to make it easier for people to understand, which I think is part of the point of these hearings. Now, at the same time, uh, Cheney mentioned that this is the ninth hearing of the committee, uh, even though I, of course, am calling it the eighth. I mean, she's absolutely correct. There was that unforgivable hearing with the police testimony last summer, one year ago this week, um, but I've been using a numbering system based on the hearings that have happened this year. So I'm sticking with it. Still the eighth hearing, as far as I'm concerned. And in my defense, NPR and C-SPAN are also using the same system. So, you know, and I think that the justification for that is that the first hearing was conducted really before the investigative work of the committee itself had begun. Both Kinsinger and Luria gave introductory remarks that described the main theme of the hearing, which of course is the sloth and inaction uh, of the 187 minutes that Trump spent in the White House dining room doing nothing while the mob attacked the Capitol. Luria said, quote, Virtually everyone told President Trump to condemn the violence in clear and unmistakable terms. And those on Capitol Hill and across the nation begged President Trump to help. But the former president chose not to do what all the, those people begged, end quote. Kinglinger said, The mob was accomplishing President Trump's purpose, so of course he didn't intervene. Here's what will be clear by the end of this hearing. President Trump did not fail to act during the 187 minutes between leaving the ellipse and telling the mob to go home. He chose not to act. As all the focus has been on Josh Hawley's Forrest Gump impression, uh, you know, I think that that's a good way to recenter it, right? It's like, okay, yes, Josh Hawley is running, but remember, the focus of the meeting was on the fact that Trump was doing nothing, uh, sitting, watching Fox News. Well, he wasn't quite doing nothing. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. He did take the time to call Rudy Giuliani uh, a couple of times in there, right? So uh, they then turned to some of the other testimony, which was new and that we hadn't seen before, which I think deserves special mention. Uh, so one of the new bits of testimony we had came from a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, who said, quote, You are the commander-in-chief. You have an assault going on on the capital of the United States of America. No call. Nothing. 
zero. Now the audio quality of that clip was worse than usual, so yeah, just read it. But again, very significant. They're using testimony from top military officials rather sparingly overall, I think, perhaps because there are ongoing inquiries within the military justice system. But this is as close as you're going to see as a condemnation of Trump from top Pentagon brass. And I really hope that one day we're going to hear more about what was happening at the highest levels in the Pentagon on January 6th. Uh, we have a good idea of what was happening in the D.C. National Guard. We don't really have that great an idea of what was going on uh, with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And even, you know, those emails we got from DHS, many of which were directed to Joint Chiefs, um, you know, much of it was redacted. So they then, the committee then spends about five minutes going over the resumes for Pottinger and Matthews. Uh, don't really need to do that here. You know, in terms of the responsibilities, uh, they're kind of at polar ends of the administration. Uh, Pottinger served as Deputy National Security Advisor. Matthew was serving as Deputy Press Secretary. So they're both deputies, but their jobs are very different. Um, Matthews had worked with Trump for only two years, and Pottinger had been in the administration from the very beginning. Now, in hindsight, of course, and you could have known this going into it, Pottinger particularly was a problematic witness. Yes, he did resign immediately, or nearly immediately, on January 6th. But he himself is, of course, also a longtime associate of Michael Flynn, with whom he served in Afghanistan in military intelligence in 2009 and 2010. Curiously, the committee did not ask Pottinger about Michael Flynn at all. Um, I think they allowed Pottinger way too many comments where he was crowing about how amazing the Trump administration had been with regard to policy. And I know I'm probably in the minority here, uh, but the idea of having Pottinger say these things, uh, you know, somehow establishes his bona fides with Trump cultists and therefore makes the rest of what he says to say more credible, not worth it. I mean, the, the price that you're paying here, you know, to do that, I don't think is, is worth paying. Um, this is really not a great occasion to allow Matthew Pottinger to take a victory lap because the problems with Trump didn't begin or end on January 6th. Another new witness whose testimony probably ought to have carried more weight uh, that seems to have been assigned by the press was an anonymous national security witness. This witness's testimony was presented by Luria, uh, who I think, again, a very effective presenter overall. You know, I liked her, her understated deadpan style. Now, the audio quality, this is audio-only testimony, obviously, because this is an anonymous official. Um, quality was pretty poor. Um, but, so again, I'll read what he said in the first bit of testimony we have from this anonymous national security official at the White House. Quote, To be completely honest, we were all in a state of shock. Because why? Because, because it just, well, one... I think the feasibility of the political feasibility of doing it. He's talking about going to the Capitol. And then we also knew what that implicated and what it meant. That this was no longer a rally. That this was going to move to something else if he physically walked to the Capitol. I, 
I don't know if you want to use the word insurrection, coup, whatever. We all knew that this would move from a normal, democratic, you know, public event into something else. What was, what was driving that sentiment, considering this, this part of it, the actual breach of the Capitol hadn't happened yet. Why were we alarmed? Right. The president wanted to lead tens of thousands of people to the Capitol. I think that was grounds enough for us to be alarmed. Now again, end quote, uh, we don't know who this individual is. Um, you can but draw your, your own conclusions. But it sounds credible, right? And it sounds like this may have been someone who may have played some role in that decision to prevent Trump from going to the Capitol because this official has knowledge of that process. And it's also truly remarkable that this national security witness has been granted anonymity by the committee. As Luria said, the reason why this happened was out of, quote, fear of retribution. Raises the question of retribution by whom? From Trump? From other people in the national security apparatus? I don't know. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but it's probably possible to work out the actual identity of this witness from some of the testimony. So it's possible that this person could be facing retribution anyway. But it is concerning to me that a national security official who's testifying before Congress may face retribution from others in the national security establishment. It reminds me of how Congress moved General Walker to a safe space by giving him the job of House Sergeant-at-Arms. But the significant, again, is that there's testimony from a White House national security official who's talking about Trump, and he's using the words coup and insurrection. Uh, we don't know what other evidence this testimony is, is provided, but that, again, is significant because people in the national security establishment, this witness included, realized that what was happening at the time was a coup. Another witness who came forward to offer new testimony revealed for the first time at the hearing was retired Metropolitan Police Department Officer Sergeant Mark Robinson. Robinson was able to offer testimony that supported Hutchinson's testimony regarding the chaotic scene as Trump waited to find out whether he'd be going to the Capitol or back to the White House to sulk. Was there any description of what of what was occurring in the car? No, only that on the only description I received was that the president was upset and that was adamant about going to the Capitol and there was a, a heated discussion about that. And when you say heated, is that your word or is that the word that was described by the T.S. agent? No, the word described by the T.S. agent, meaning that the president was upset and he was saying there was a, a heated argument or discussion about going to the Capitol. Robinson offered additional testimony saying that, uh, again, backing up the other testimony we saw in the seventh hearing, that... It was known to law enforcement, and presumed definitely Secret Service as well, that there were members of the mob that were armed. Um, then Luria directs her questioning to the matter of what was happening with regard to Trump. What was he doing at the end of the speech, and what did he want to do 
and how was the Secret Service and law enforcement handling his demand that they go to the Capitol? So at the end of the speech, what was the plan supposed to be? So at the, the end of the speech, uh, we do know that while inside the limo, the president was still uh, adamant about going to the Capitol that's being relayed to me by the TS agent. And so we did part the ellipse and we responded back to the White House. However, we the, the motorcade, the protest motorcade was placed on standby. And so we were told to stand by uh, on the West Exec until they confirmed whether or not the president was going to go to the Capitol. And so I may have waited, I would just estimate maybe 45 to 45 minutes to an hour um, waiting for Secret Service to make that decision. So again, great witness, and I think it's, Fascinating to consider how extraordinary what his testimony uh, actually meant. There's 45 minutes. They get back to the White House. Someone at the Secret Service is deciding what to do with Trump, right? Now, he should be probably go to a secure location at this point. Uh, instead, you know, the Secret Service is contemplating getting him back into the Beast, or rather the SUV, uh, whether or not they're going to take him to a scene of ongoing political violence, a scene where some of the participants are known by law enforcement to be armed. So, new information, new testimony from Sergeant Robinson. Luria then makes a point of mentioning that Secret Service agents, uh, in response to the inquiries of the committee with regard to all of this, have retained private counsel. Um, yeah. So I'm rather curious to know whether or not they're having some third party fund their attorney bills. You know, as we've seen Sidney Powell funding the legal bills for Oath Keepers, you know, perhaps the Secret Services. And, and again, if someone, that is so extraordinary, right? Because if they had done nothing wrong, the government would be defending them. Instead, they're retaining private counsel. So clearly they did something wrong, right? They did something wrong because they don't want to testify or at least testify truthfully and fully. And they also are lawyering up. Luria then moves on to laying out the overall timeline. Trump spends from 1.25 to 4 p.m. in the dining room of the White House watching Fox News. And the committee showed a very swell graphic depicting the dining room itself with the television on the wall that was tuned into the very programming that Trump would have been watching uh, on the end afternoon of January 6th. Luria also noted that from 11.06 to 6.56 p.m., there were new calls logged into the call log and nothing in the activity log from 1.21 to 4.03. So, curious omissions, and, of course, typical of how the Trump administration operated. We now know, you know, missing text messages, eating papers, burning papers in the fireplace, flushing documents down the toilet, and, you know, taking secret documents down to Mar-a-Lago, and failure to maintain records with regards to things like, you know, secret visitors showing up at the White House, being let in by Pete, uh, Peter Navarro's aide, 
uh, or, you know, the the call logs or the activity logs. Just just don't fill anything out, apparently, was the approach uh, when they couldn't or didn't want to destroy documents. The committee then presented video evidence from a variety of witnesses confirming that Trump did nothing during this entire period. You had testimony from Cipollone, Kellogg, Luna, and the anonymous national security official, uh, who also gave more testimony that Luria didn't play on audio, but rather paraphrased. Quote, the former White House employee with national security responsibilities told us about a conversation with senior advisor Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone, the top White House lawyer. This conversation was about a pending call from the Pentagon seeking to coordinate on the response to the attack. Mr. Hirschman turned to Mr. Cipollone and said, the president didn't want to do anything. End quote. Now, I am very curious to know what time that call was received. I think it's very significant that the committee is receiving, reserving some information, right, uh, similar to how they're using little material from the top military officials. There's got to be more of this story. What time did they get the call from the Pentagon? Must have happened fairly early in the timeline in the dining room, assuming that the committee in the presentation of their evidence uh, is actually proceeding sequentially along the timeline, which they, their account appears to give every appearance of doing. So it was seen that the president refusing to take a call from the Pentagon on January 6th, would it be at least as big of a story as Josh Hawley running? He's the commander-in-chief. His job is to command the military. And yet, just as Miller and McCarthy avoided talking to National Guard commanding officer Major General Walker, Trump avoided talking to General Milley. So, again, yet another bit of new information that is new testimony. I would have actually liked to see Eric Hirschman testify to that fact because, you know, they've got Hirschman's testimony on other things. This is, we're getting this sort of like second or third hand. Um, you know, I'm sure he would have had a few choice words. Luria then turns to recorded testimony from McEnany to establish what Trump actually said uh, or what Trump was actually doing at that time. Question is uh, from an unknown uh, assistant or investigator uh, to the committee. All right, that says back there and calls, that says back there he wants a list of senators, and then he's calling them one by one. Do you know which ones he called? McEnany. To the best of my recollection, no. As I said in my notes, he wanted a list of the senators. And, you know, I left him at that point. So he's refusing calls from the Pentagon, uh, while at the same time looking for a list of the senators. You know, that just kind of raises questions to me, right? Like, which senators does he want a list of? The no votes? The yes votes? We don't know. Be great to get the hands on that list. But Trump seems to know that he literally has a captive audience at this point. So at 1.49, D.C. police declare a riot, and at the same time, Trump tweets out a link to his speech. Again, the committee is showing the contrast between, well, you should be talking to the Pentagon. You should be you know, uh, ensuring the safety and security of the Capitol. Instead, he's tweeting and uh, trying to figure out who is in the United States Senate, which you would think he would have a working relationship with people 
in the U.S. Senate by this point. So again, I mean, we knew this, but it's a good storytelling part of the, the hearing. When a normal president would be looking to secure the Capitol, Trump is still working to find some way to obstruct the certification of the electoral vote tally and thereby stay in office. From 149 to 222, 224, excuse me, according to the committee's timeline, staff just keep coming in continuously into the dining room to try to convince Trump to do something. And here we have another, what I believe is a new fact, um, basically from Giuliani's call logs. Right? Didn't have, we don't have the, the president's stuff. He's using burner phones or he's not logging his calls or something. But we do have the information that Trump made an outgoing call and he called Rudy Giuliani at 1.39 and talked to him for four minutes. Now, I'd love to know what they discussed, right? I mean, basically he gets in, you know, like 1.25. One of the first things he does is call Rudy Giuliani. This is right before he's, you know, he's turned down calls from the Pentagon or, you know, perhaps even at the same time, turning down calls from the Pentagon, but calling Rudy Giuliani. So that again, um, you know, obviously Giuliani is a major figure here. We know that Giuliani was in on the plan for Trump to go to the Capitol because he told Hutchinson that he was going to, quote, appear strong on January 6th. Um, was he just complaining to Rudy about the fact that he wasn't allowed to go to the Capitol? I don't think so. I think they're organizing something. And one omission, again, that I find curious is that the committee didn't mention Giuliani's exact location at the time of the call, right? We know Trump's in the dining room. Where, where's Giuliani? Well, most likely, we know this because there's photos, uh, he was at the war room at the Willard with John Eastman. Christina Bob, Bernie Carrick, Boris Epstein, Russell Ramsland, and Philip Lulstoff from the First Amendment Praetorians. So Trump and Rudy, you know, have this strange idea that everything is privileged because Rudy, of course, was at the time an attorney. So it raises the question, right? Is Rudy the go-between here? Is he uh, not just the go-between for the election disinformation work? The fake elector work, um, you know, is he also the go-between with the militias? Now, again, go back to Exhibit 10. Kelly Sorrell says that she's working with Rudy. So it's a very curious thread for the committee to drop, right? And they know where Rudy Giuliani was, but you go through the whole transcript, they never mention the Willard uh, at all in any of this. So, you know, I think that this, this hearing is for public consumption, um, but also to not show their hand with regard to any cases that the DOJ might bring. You know, are they going over this with a fine-toothed comb with the Department of Justice? And the Department of Justice saying, okay, well, you can say they called Giuliani, but we don't want you to talk about where Giuliani is because everybody in that room is someone that we are developing cases against. I don't know. Um, but, again, remember that in Hutchinson's testimony, uh, she said that she recalled hearing the words Oath Keepers and Proud Boys whenever Rudy was around. And I do wonder if maybe Hutchinson got a little bit more specific on that and whether or not her transcript has been handed over to the Department of Justice. So that's the first call. Uh, Trump calls Rudy Giuliani again at 
and speaks to him for eight minutes. So again, pretty, pretty telling, right? Not talking to the Pentagon, what he is doing, asking for a list of senators, and talking to Rudy Giuliani, who is probably at the Willard at this point. Another bit of new testimony from this unidentified uh, national security official who apparently is someone who has access to the National Security Council chat log um, is that he offered testimony with regard to the state of mind of Mike Pence's security detail just prior to Trump's infamous 224 tweet. And again, I'm assuming this based on the order of things in the testimony. So there's all this testimony from Cipollone and Hutchinson and Kellogg and Matthews and Judd Deere um, talking about, you know, how they're going into the dining room to tell Rudy, sorry, to tell Trump uh, to tell everyone to go home. And then immediately thereafter, they offer the testimony of, uh, again, another bit of testimony from this unidentified White House national security official, who, which I will read because um, they're using this anonymizer feature. And uh, I, I know this podcast is known for excellent sound quality, but it, it's even worse than what I would record. So the question is, quote, okay, the last entry on the page is service at the Capitol does, does not sound good right now. Correct. What does that mean? Response. Well, members of the VP detail at this time were starting to fear for their own lives. There were a lot of, there was a lot of yelling, a lot of, a lot of very personal calls over the radio. So it was disturbing. I don't like talking about it, but there, there were calls to say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. It was getting, for whatever reason, was on the ground, the VP detail thought that it was about to get very ugly. And, question, and did you hear that on the radio? Correct. Question, okay, what was the response by the agents who were, Secret Date Service agents who were there? Answer, everybody kept saying, you know, at that point it was just reassurances, or I think there were discussions of reinforcements coming. But, again, it was just chaos, and they were... Just obviously, you've conveyed that's disturbing, but what prompted you to put an entry in? And again, this is where I think this is, you know, the, we're talking about the National Security Council chat log, and this is in reference to an entry in the National Security chat log. What prompted you to put an entry, as it states there, service at the Capitol? Quote, they were running out of options, and they were getting nervous. It, it sounds like we're that we came very close to either service, having to use lethal options, or worse. Like, like at that point, I don't know. Is the VP compromised? Is the detail come, like, I, I don't know, I don't know. Like, we didn't have visibility, but doesn't, if they're screaming and saying things like, say goodbye to the family, like, the floor needs to know this is going to be on a whole another level soon. And so then the um, committee documents how agitated the crowd is already. And uh, again, at this point, Vice President Pence's detail 
thinks that they are in mortal danger, uh, the protectee is in mortal danger, and that they may have to start using lethal force to secure the vice president. And it's at this point um, that they, well, they show some, some, some things like, for example, I'm not going to play it, there's the audio from the Oath Keepers Zello chat so showing uh, Jessica Watkins and other people talking about, you know, the mood and uh, how they're all going to storm the Capitol and that sort of thing, which, you know, again, not, you know, this is one that's directly relevant to an ongoing court case, um, but, you know, as sympathetic a figure as Jessica Watkins likes to depict herself as now, you know, on January 6th, she's like, yeah, we're, we're going to storm the Capitol, America. So, you know. Um, and then again, so it's at this moment that Trump tweets out his 224 tweet, which, of course, everybody has heard by now, um, but just read it again. So what they've done again, they're, they're telling the story. Things are getting bad. They're going from bad to worse. Secret Service is apparently freaking out which, again, is something that was new, um, and that the building is breached. And it's in this context that Donald Trump decides he's going to up the ante by tweeting this. Quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution, giving states a chance to certify a corrected set of facts, not the fraudulent or inaccurate ones which they asked, were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth. And that's when Representative Luria uh, basically asked Pottinger to recount um, what his reaction was to seeing this tweet. And, of course, this is the moment when he decides to resign. Now, I'm actually not going to play that much from Pottinger. Um, just maybe this one other thing. You know, he's not a great witness, I don't think. Um, but, again, this is someone who's Trump's bona fides are, are not in question, and this is his reaction to the 2.24 p.m. tweet. Yes, so that was um, pretty soon after I'd, or, or shortly before I'd gotten back to the White House, I'd come from off-site. Uh, I began to see for the first time those images on TV of the chaos that was uh, unfolding at the Capitol. One of my aides uh, handed me a sheet of paper that uh, contained the tweet that you just uh, read. Uh, I, I read it and uh, was uh, quite disturbed by it. Uh, I, I was disturbed and worried to see that the president was attacking uh, Vice President Pence for doing his constitutional duty. So the tweet looked to me like the opposite of what, what we really needed at that moment, which was a de-escalation. Uh, and uh, that's why I, I had said earlier that it looked like fuel being poured on the fire. So that was the moment that I decided uh, that I was going to resign, that that would be my last day at the White House. Uh, I, I simply didn't want to be associated with, uh, uh, with the events that were unfolding on the Capitol. Immediately thereafter, Representative Luria asks Sarah Matthews about her reaction to the tweet, uh, which again, you know, Significant moments. We knew that there were people who resigned, of course, obviously. Um, that was known publicly. But to record the reactions of some of the officials within the White House who did resign on January 6th, and that this was the key moment um, 
Also, I mean, to, to be fair to Matthews um, and to Pottinger, uh, unlike some of the witnesses, it appears may, they may be having notes, but they're not actually reading. They are speaking extemporaneously, so uh, good for them. I mean, their, their thoughts, you know, seem to be pretty clear uh, with regard to the, the recollections of the events of that day. I thought Matthews was a little bit better than Pottinger on this, because he's like, me, 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 my, what, you know, I don't want to be associated with this. But Matthews actually does a better job of explaining the significance of the tweet for Trump's followers. Let's have a listen. This was going to be bad for him to tweet this because it was essentially him giving the green light to these uh, people, telling them that what they were doing at the steps of the Capitol and entering the Capitol was okay, that they were justified in their anger. And he shouldn't have been doing that. He should have been telling these people to go home and to leave and to condemn the violence that we were seeing. And I'm someone who has worked with him. You know, I worked on the campaign, traveled all around the country, going to countless rallies with him. And I've seen the impact that his words have on his supporters. He, they truly latch on to every word and every tweet that he says. And so... I think that in that moment, for him to tweet out the message about Mike Pence, it was him pouring gasoline on the fire and making it much worse. You know, which seems to be a pretty accurate take, right? Seems to be a pretty accurate statement about mobs in general, and this Trumpist mob in particular. Uh, people have commented on the cult-like mentality, and I think Matthews is an accurate observer of the nature of the Trumpist mob. And interestingly, it's at this very moment, according to the timeline, at 2.26, Pence is evacuated, or rather taken to the secure location, uh, a.k.a. Uh, the parking structure. So, also at 2.26, uh, Trump calls Tommy to reveal, and we've got, you know, again, um, video, confirma video confirmation. Confirmation of that is well presented at the hearing. He called, didn't call my phone, called somebody else, and uh, they handed it to me, and I, I basically told him, I said, Mr. President, we're, we're not doing much work here right now because they just took our vice president out, and matter of fact, I'm going to hang up on you. Uh, I've got to leave. And it's at this moment in the hearing that they present the evidence uh, showing the contrast between the fist bump and uh, the, the actual fleeing through the halls of the Capitol, which I've already addressed. So, again, there's, I'm not going to show all the evidence or play all the evidence here. Just lots of different reactions from different people in the administration, different Republicans, uh, to the 224 tweet, of course. Um, and how, you know, you've got multiple people talking about multiple failures on the part of Trump. Uh, Jared Kushner saying that, you know, uh, he basically agreeing with statements that Trump uh, failed in his duty. Uh, Kellogg, uh, General Kellogg, saying that you know he believes there is a constitutional duty that Trump fails at that point, and then the committee moves to recess. When they return from recess, Luria hands off the microphone to Adam Kinzinger, and uh, he basically sums up the second half of the committee's case in his introduction to the second half of the hearing, saying, "Quote." By this time, the president had been in his dining room for over an hour. For an hour, I want you to just think of what you would have done if you were in his shoes and had the power to end the violence. 
you would have immediately and forcefully told the rioters to stop and leave. Like, stop and leave. Done. As you heard, that's exactly what his senior staff had been urging him to do. But he resisted, and he kept resisting for almost another two hours. In the meantime, all the president did was to post two tweets, one at 2.38 and the other at 3.13. One said, quote, stay peaceful. The other said, quote, remain peaceful. But the president already knew that the mob was attacking the police and had invaded the Capitol. Neither tweet condemned the violence or told the mob to leave the Capitol and disperse. To appreciate how obvious it was that President Trump was not beating this moment, it's helpful to look at the real-time reactions of his own son, Don Jr., to the first tweet captured in a series of text messages with Mark Meadows. And Kinzinger summarizes, what they appear on screen, the text messages to Mark Meadows from, from Don Trump, Trump Jr. First text at 2.53, Don Jr. says, quote, He's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Mark Meadows, I'm pushing it hard, I agree. Donald Trump Jr., this one you go to the mattresses on. They will try to ruin his entire legacy if it gets worse. Actually, I misspoke. He didn't say they will try to ruin his entire legacy. They will try to fuck his entire legacy if it gets worse. So, Don Jr., apparently, chip off the old block, bit of a potty mouth like his dad. And there's a little bit of a moment where it gets silly, where they have a, you know, a little segment showing Don Jr. explaining what go to the mattresses means, like, there's a Godfather reference, whatever. I, again, you know, it seems like 50% of the Trump administration, um, you know, are guys named Tony or Joe, whose names end in a vowel. Uh, so, you know... Yeah, it's not surprising that they're all using Godfather references. You know, these are, I mean, Don, you know, Donald Trump is basically uh, a mobbed up gangster. You know, Roy Cohn was his mentor. None of this uh, should be surprising. And Kinzinger then goes on to document even more. Like, what's Trump doing? What Trump is doing, apparently, is hearing from people who are mad at him, right? So it's not just... Don Jr., um, Trump gets a text from, uh, sorry, Mark Meadows gets a text from Sean Hannity at 3.31 p.m. Uh, telling the that basically, you know, they're supposed to leave the Capitol. And, you know, Meadows says uh, that he's on it. Apparently that's what Mark Meadows is doing that day. He's just going around telling everybody that, that he's on it. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, of what happens with the D.C. National Guard and Ryan McCarthy. Right? Ryan McCarthy saying, they're deployed. Mark Meadows is saying, yeah, I'm on it. Well, he's not on it, and they are not deployed. So uh, everyone's urging Trump to, quote, speak publicly to get the mob to stop. And, uh, again, they just the list keeps on going. Laura Ingraham um, is, you know, Basically saying the president needs to tell the people to go to the Capitol to get a home. Mick Mulvaney um, urged Meadows, quote, he needs to stop this now. Brian Kilmeade uh, sends text to Meadows saying, please get him on TV, destroying everything that you guys have accomplished. And 
Pat Cipollone, uh, during his interview, said, quote, uh, the president's two tweets were, were not enough, and there's a long segment with Pat Cipollone. And the, I'm not going to play the whole thing because it, it takes a little bit of time, but basically the gist of it is he's asked by Liz Cheney, did anyone uh, think it wasn't a good idea to you know, tell people to go home? Um, and he's like, uh, no, no, everybody did. He's like, are you sure? And he's like, he acts kind of dumb here, you know? And he acts like he completely forgot. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I can't speak to the person who wanted to make sure that, that nobody went home. Um, I can't reveal communications, but obviously I think you know, yeah, right. So basically, uh, according to his staff and according to everyone who's in communication with him, according to these various uh, Fox people who are texting Mark Meadows, uh, everybody uh, is telling him to tell the people to go home, right? Tell the mob to go home. And, of course, he doesn't do that. So, again, they do a pretty good job here, I think, of showing what Trump was doing. Um, that he is basically trying to strong-arm various members of Congress who you know, are literally a captive audience, and uh, everyone else in the whole orbit of Trump is telling him, hey, uh, let's you know tell them to go home, which, of course, again, he doesn't do. There's also an interesting excerpt from the Oath Keepers' uh, Zello recording that, um, you know, shows basically some insight into how they received uh, these support our capital police tweets that Trump was sending out. And again, it shows that, you know, they're, they're reading his messages carefully when, you know, when he's not saying go home, right, when he's saying something else, um, they're reading this as though they are instructions. Military Principle 105. Military Principle 105, cave means grave. Trump just tweeted, please support our Capitol Police. They are on our side. Do not harm them. That's saying a lot by what he didn't say. He didn't say not to do anything to the Congressman. <laughs> now, I know I've mentioned it before, um, but everyone on that Zello chat, uh, except for Watkins, uh, is they're not actually in the Capitol, right? So that fellow who's saying, you know, Kate means grave, they didn't say, you know, not to hurt, the, do anything to the congressman, uh, wasn't actually at the Capitol. Nonetheless, showed, uh, I think, you know, something of the Trumpist mentality on January 6th. There's then a, basically a recitation, a reconstruction of the famous Kevin McCarthy phone call uh, with Trump, where, you know, basically uh, McCarthy gets enraged. Um, and, you know, ends the call, but I, think, I believe it was, you know, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And uh, there's, I, I think, some good testimony, there's testimony from Mark Short, um, but the, sort of the, the killer clip to me, which I won't play because the sound quality, is, it's, I, I think it's a phone line, um, from Jamie Herrera-Boitler of Washington, uh, she writes, or said on the phone, quote, you know, I asked Kevin McCarthy, who's a Republican leader, about this, as if you didn't know who Kevin McCarthy was, anyway. And he said he, she called Donald. He called Donald. That's transcription error. He finally got through to Donald Trump. And he said, you have to get on TV. 
McCarthy. You have to get on TV. You've got to get on Twitter. You've got to call these people off. You know what the president said to him? This is as it's happening. He said, well, Kevin, these aren't my people. You know, these are, these are Antifa. And Kevin responded and said, no, they're your people. They literally just came through my office windows and my staff are running for cover. I mean, they're running for their lives. You need to call them off. And the president's response to Kevin, to me, was chilling. He said, well, Kevin, I guess they're just more upset about the election. You know, theft than you are. And that's, you know, we've seen widespread reports of of Kevin McCarthy and the president having basically a swearing conversation. Sorry, keep, that's not even, that's not even a very good Trump impression. Anyway, so they're having, they're having a swearing conversation. The swearing commences, and um, the, the, she ends with this quote, the president was basically saying, nah, I'm okay with this. So the president is okay with this, and hopefully we can get maybe some more direct, I mean, this is hearsay on top of hearsay. Um, but nonetheless, you know, that's pretty shocking, right? I mean, not, not only is he basically not doing anything, he's telling Kevin McCarthy, who's in the Capitol, that I'm okay with it. I'm not going to do anything about it. And so the committee takes time to, you know, document what McCarthy's doing. McCarthy calls Trump. McCarthy calls Meadows. McCarthy's calling the Trump kids. Um, trying to tell everybody, you know, to call it off. Um... Mike Gallagher is saying, quote, you need to call it off. Uh, and then Biden, of course, goes live on TV, which everybody knows. Now, at 3.58 p.m., Fox News shows that, quote, the D.C. National Guard has been mobilized and the FBI is uh, also sending people. So, um, and again, you know, we know that... That information, of course, not necessarily true. The FBI was sending people at this point in time, but the D.C. National Guard would get stonewalled for another hour. So, basically, the situation on the ground is getting worse for the Trumpists. Um, you've got more reinforcements, especially from the MPD, showing up. At, and so... That is when, at some point, of course, Trump is finally persuaded to go out to the Rose Garden and read something, uh, the content of which we are all familiar with. Now, I had hoped that we would see the outtakes. We didn't, we didn't really see the outtakes on that. Uh, we saw that the message, which I'm not going to bother to play, you know, we have to have peace, so go home, we love you, you're very special, you've seen what happens, you see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel, but go home and go home in peace. So, uh, and again, that's Trump basically, you know, he waits until after they've essentially lost. And of course, there's this moment where Hirschman says, we were pretty drained, which is something that uh, Sergeant Gunnell, for example, did not react well to, right? Because, you know, of course, members of the White House team are saying, well, they're drained, but, uh, you know, not nearly as drained as law enforcement, who, of course, are still fighting and are still going to have a very long evening. Uh, Nick Luna 
Trump's body man, uh, basically reported that, you know, there were prepared re remarks, but Trump didn't use any of those. In fact, it didn't sound like he used any of those. Uh, it sounded pretty incoherent, just his usual word salad. And what I'm hoping is perhaps, you know, there is a possibility of outtakes still that, again, those are supposedly multiple takes and that this was the best one. Um, so what I'm hoping, again, is that this is one of those where they're retaining this evidence either to use it at future hearing for dramatic effect or because it might be relevant to some kind of future legal effort against the people who are involved. So that's kind of new, right? We, we basically learned that after 417, everybody's done. Day is over at the White House. And then, uh, of course, you know, things are still popping off at the Capitol. And they show a series of, quote, never-before-seen photos um, and also a uh, call with Chris Miller. And they're looking at, you know, basically what's to be done now. Again, Trump's out of the picture. And so you've got everybody else, you know, members of Congress, the vice president, people in the Pentagon, Chris Miller, eh, maybe, uh, quote, stepping up at least to try and fix the problem. That was Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mark Milley. And so we now know, apparently, that um, there's records from the Pentagon that the committee presumably has of this call between Pence and Miller. So maybe that explains a little bit of what Miller is doing. Uh, he's talking to Mike Pence. So in effect, and there's been some talk about, well, the point for the amendment wasn't in blah, blah, blah. In all... For all intents and purposes, Mike Pence was the acting president at that point. Um, you know, just a kind of de facto abdication on the part of President Trump at that point. And, you know, people can talk about the chain of command and everything else, but Trump had was AOL and um, was AOL. He was AOL. Um, and... You know, so Pence steps in, and we don't have an adequate constitutional provision for that situation. But you know what? People do what they need to do in exigent circumstances. And there's further testimony from Millie, which again, consider how extraordinary this is. So you just had Millie describe his call with Pence, then he's going to describe his call with Mark Meadows.
well, maybe he doesn't do political narratives anymore. You know, I seem to recall. Anyway, let, let's let bygones be bygones at this point. Um, you know what? I mean, there are people who have dealt with Trump for years and still never learned the proper lessons. So at least Millie was showing that, you know, he learned something at Lafayette Park. And so finally we have uh, President Trump's last tweet of the day, uh, which Adam Kinzinger quoted. He said, quote, These are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide victory is so unceremoniously, viciously stripped away from great patriots who have been badly, unfairly treated for so long. Go home with love and peace. Remember this day forever. So, yeah. Um, and then he just, he goes like, right? So, and then there's one comment uh, from an unidentified White House employee, maybe uh, perhaps Trump's valet, that um, he spoke with Trump and Trump didn't say anything about the attack. Uh, and that the only thing he had said to him was that, quote, Mike Pence let me down. And so they then get a series of reactions. Uh, they get reactions from Pottinger. They get reactions from Matthews. They get reactions from Nicholas Luna. They get reactions from Tim Murtaugh, who says that it's criminal and unpatriotic. They get reactions from Pat Cipollone. They get reactions from Greg Jacob. Jacob said, quote, To my mind, it was a day that should be remembered in infamy. That wasn't the tenor of this tweet. And so, yeah, Trump's MIA, but now Giuliani's working because, of course, you know, what's going on next? They're going to clear the capital of rioters and attackers, and they're going to uh, hold the vote. So Giuliani is frantically working the phones, and uh, Kinzinger gives us a list of people whom he, who, with whom he's spoken. Despite the violence of the day, the effort to delay the certification continued. That evening, Rudy Giuliani called several of President Trump's closest political allies in the hour before the joint session resumed. Representative Jim Jordan... Senators Marshall Blackburn, Tommy Tuberville, Bill Haggerty, Lindsey Graham, Josh Hawley, and Ted Cruz. We know why Mr. Giuliani was calling them, because at 7.02, he left a voicemail for Senator Tuberville, which later became public. Let's listen to just the start of it. Interesting list, of course, mainly comprised of senators, 
Um, they already had plenty of House members to object, and so Giuliani is trying to line up more people in the Senate. And, you know, I, it's bizarre. I mean, I don't know why he seems to think that uh, Tuberville or Tuberville, um, however he wants to pronounce it, um, would prefer to be addressed as coach rather than senator to most people's minds. I would think senator, especially if you're a sitting senator, would be a more appropriate title. Now, that's most of the new material. Now, there's a lot of talk about, well, what happens next? You know, people resigning. You know, what's the, the right calculus? Do I stay in the administration and make sure Trump doesn't do anything crazy? Or do I resign immediately and discuss? Um, there is Gene Scalia. Uh, who uh, apparently wanted to hold a cabinet meeting, right? So, you know, we've had all this, and, and he's going to hold a, a cabinet meeting. Um, again, ooh, oh boy, right? So, you know, it, it's having a request for a, a cabinet meeting. That's probably, you know, not the, I don't know. It just seems kind of silly. And, uh, you know, again, Scalia probably not a major player in the administration to begin with. I think I'll end this episode the same way the committee chose to end it because it was a compelling bit of testimony, even though it wasn't video evidence, even though it was uh, basically just Representative Luria reading some tweets, um, mainly uh, from Tim Murtaugh, that really, you know, I think accurately, again, described the situation uh, on January 6th, and uh, again, more compelling because, of course, it's coming, well, more compelling, hopefully, because it's coming from Trump insider. Um, I know they, they built a lot on the fact that this is all coming from people, you know, who are Trumpists, and I don't know if that's a great, necessarily great way to go. It's like we talked about, like, the need for, you know, diversity and what have you. I, I think it would be perhaps more compelling if we had uh, some, a little bit more diversity in there, right? Some more Americans uh, complaining about the fact that, you know, you've got someone trying to say that some people's votes should count more than other people. In any event, uh, here's Luria reading that series of uh, exchanges via text, which I think, again, uh, there's good reason to save it for last. Murtaugh said, Also shitty not to have acknowledged the death of the Capitol Police officer. Walking responded, that's enraging to me. Everything he said about supporting law enforcement was a lie. To which Murtaugh replied, you know what this is? Of course, if he acknowledged the dead cop, he'd be implicitly faulting the mob. And he won't do that because they're his people. And he would also be close to acknowledging that what he lit at the rally got out of control. No way he acknowledges something that could ultimately be called his fault. No way. So all in all, you know, very effective. Um, I thought that the summations this, this time were quite good. I'm not going to read them all. Um, I thought Representative Luria did a good job uh, when she said that this wasn't just a story of inaction. Um, this was, was not, this went beyond mere passivity. So... She said, quote, We've described how the President of the United States, who was bound by oath to the Constitution 
and by duty to ensure the laws are faithfully executed, took no action when the cornerstone of our democracy, a peaceful transfer of power, was under attack. But it's more than that. Donald Trump summoned a violent mob and promised to lead that mob to the Capitol to compel those he thought would cave to that kind of pressure. And when he was thwarted in his attempt to lead the armed uprising, he instigated the attackers to target the vice president with violence, a man who just wanted to do his constitutional duty. So in the end, this is not, as it may appear, a story of inaction at a time of crisis, but instead it was the final action of Trump's own plan to assert, to subvert the will of the people and remain in power. Although, of course, I, I probably should have said, no, we're not ending it with Murtaugh. Um, Cheney, in her summation, also included uh, what she describes as resurfaced audio, uh, audio from Steve Bannon that has resurfaced. I don't know that it's going to be entirely new to everyone. I, I seem to vaguely recollect something about this. Um, but at this point, you know, I probably got so much Steve Bannon floating around, living rent-free in my head, uh, that it, it just might seem like something he's said before. Um, so, one final audio clip from Steve Bannon. And it's not a great clip. Um, well, it is a great clip. But, you know, the audio quality isn't quite what perhaps one would hope. Nonetheless, I think it does a couple of things. First off, you know, this is coming the same week as the Bannon verdict. Secondly, it's showing a new direction for the committee. It's been Trump, 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 right? Um, but we've seen that the committee also acknowledges that, you know, so many people around Trump were involved in this and that they're going to have to pay the piper too. So in September, one of the things I hope is that I appreciate the laser focus on Trump, but they got to address Mike Flynn. They've got to address Ali Alexander, you know, Kylie, both Kramers. They've got to address Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani. These people are definitely his closest co-conspirators and, and many others, right? And these are people who are going to have to be brought to justice. Uh, because if not, you know, they, they, there's a strong deterrent effect. If we're jailing people for stealing, for simple theft in retail establishments, these are people who attempted to overthrow an intellectual democracy in America. And if we do not deter that through swift and decisive legal, legal action, then our children and our children's children are going to have to live with the consequences. And those consequences are not going to be great. And so I think this is a little bit new and different, right? I think Cheney is pointing to that uh, because in her closing she says, quote, what the new Steve Bannon audio demonstrates 
is that Donald Trump's plan to falsely claim victory in 2020, no matter what the facts actually were, was premeditated. Perhaps even worse, Donald Trump believed he could convince his voters to buy it, whether he had any actual evidence of fraud or not. So, they've done a great job. They can go, you know, very, I, I rarely would say that members of Congress deserve their nice long August recess. Uh, members of the committee certainly have earned it. And I'm sure the work of the committee, at least with regard to the staff, and perhaps members working remotely, is probably going to continue through the August recess. That They've shown uh, more endurance than I would have credited at the beginning. They are uh, basically at this, in it to win it, until the very end. And so I think this last tranche of hearings is very positive. And also the news that we're seeing about the cooperation between the Department of Justice and the committee. I know there are many people who have been critical of Merrick Garland. We're seeing signs of life at the Justice Department. We're seeing things like, oh, it looks like the, the, you know, that plea deal that Brandon Stracka got turns out uh, wound up putting more people in jail. And he's someone who's connected to organizers and insiders. So hopefully, just as we're seeing more and more AFO defendants arrested for some reason uh, lately, although, again, the overall volume is lower, but the, uh, when we look at the number of people who are being arrested uh, for assault on a federal officer, as opposed to parading defendants, that number, that ratio, is up. Um, you know, it looks like we may be turning yet another corner to, you know, maybe the Bannon conviction was a milestone uh, where we're moving into a new phase yet again where we've had this case that's been made to the public and now the DOJ is going to take over. And I don't think this was all aimed at Merrick Garland. I think that Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice has been working on their cases all along. Again, it's kind of a two-track investigation. This political part is going to be ongoing. Hopefully now we can move to more of the justice part of it. So, anyway, thank you so much for your listenership. Uh, if you haven't, please like, rate, and subscribe. Uh, occasionally, apparently, uh, I get like random January 6th people who listen to the podcast and, uh, or don't listen to the podcast, but they just go on and uh, give me horrible ratings. So, please, make, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do rate it on the podcaster of your choice to make up for those people. Thank you so much, and enjoy the August recess.